All right, let's get the show on the road. Commanding you to bow down. I'm on your side. By branding you as a rebel. But you're not. A traitor. This isn't freedom. This is fear. government. The government is not us. This is Welcome, welcome, welcome to Dino Files. Episode number 108, maybe? That or it's 109? I'm not actually sure at this point. Yeah, it's 109. That's what it is. Coming at you live on Alternative Internet Radio, A-I-R-A-D dot I-O slash live. On this, the 22nd of August. Man, uh... The DNC is is over. It was interesting. I watched uh, Justin Robert Young's uh, Twitch live Twitch streams of the DNC. That was quite an experience. He's a very good presenter. I like his stuff quite a bit. Um, they they the, the Democrats have a very interesting uh, challenge, and, and there's a lot of unforced errors going on, especially with the DNC in particular. They seem to be buying into the Lincoln Project grift that there's a shitload of conservatives just waiting to line up to vote for Biden, and so they spent some time signaling to those people in the same and they had, uh, I can't remember, Kay, uh, no, not Kasich, um, actually it might have been Kasich, on there, talking about how Biden's gonna stand up to the Bernie-style frog left, and then they had Bernie on, talking about how Biden's gonna be a great partner for the prog left. Um, so it's kind of confused messaging. Uh, that was on the, the first or second night, though. I think it was on the first night. Um, I will say, though, uh, Biden gave a good speech. I mean, from a, from a, from a totally political perspective, Biden gave a, a pretty good speech. Um... As did, you know, Michelle and Barack and uh, Kamala. The the speeches were all relatively solid. One thing they did do that I thought was hilarious, and I'm sure everybody hates this kind of coverage of this thing, but but it's funny. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez went on and nominated, of course, Bernie Sanders, because Bernie Sanders never officially dropped. Um, so she had to. He was technically still nominated. Uh, so they had to go through and, and you know, count up delegates and things, and, and Bernie... People were very confused about why AOC said that she nominated Bernie Sanders. People thought that she was trying to stage a coup. And it's like, no, this is just, like, this is totally normal. This is the way this works. He's still technically nominated, so they still have to go through and count his delegates, even though he's not going to actually win um, the nomination. So it's a, it, was a, it was just interesting. She started off by saying that he was this great dude who stood up for all these wonderful things. 
And then on the next night, they took a chunk of her speech talking about Bernie and made it seem like she was talking about Joe Biden. <laughs> Which made me laugh. I'm, I'm thinking that's gotta, that must have burned her ass for them to have her saying, oh, he's this wonderful guy, blah, blah, blah. But she was talking about Bernie, and they cut it to make it seem like she was talking about Biden. I just love it. Um, as a result, though, of the DNC, let's look at some numbers. Uh, it looks like Biden's numbers have slipped a little bit. Uh, from a general election poll from The Hill, uh, this was on the 21st. Biden 46, Trump 38. That's Biden plus 8. Oof. Um, we also have a, uh, in the, in the state-specific polls, uh, now this goes back to sort of during the DNC, so they're not going to reflect a lot of the changes, but it's, uh, Biden isn't looking great in a lot of these. Not looking much better in state-specific polls than he was, and it looks like he slipped a little bit in the general. Uh, also, the betting odds are shifting a little bit. The Trump, uh, the, the betting odds for 2020 on the 21st, Joe Biden 55.9, Donald Trump 43.1. Trump is up and Biden is down a little bit. So, <laughs> uh, I'm wondering if people were not particularly impressed with the convention, I'm wondering if, if, I mean, nobody watched it, we know that too. Uh, we know that the progs are angry about Joe Biden, we know that uh, the, Biden, uh, the Biden campaign seems to think there's a just like a shitload of conservatives lining up to vote for him, which is insane and seems insane to me. Um, <sighs> the, the result, and again, these are just kind of immediate results and things, they don't necessarily reflect anything, but they're interesting. Um, some of these numbers are, uh, are not reflecting well on their performance. I'm very excited to see what the RNC can throw together. Uh, going second, they have the opportunity to learn from all the DNC's mistakes. Like, hearing stage directors count people down to their live thing in a different location. Ugh, God, it was just, the production quality was just not there. Um, but I think... There was somebody talking about, I can't remember, I think it was somebody on, on one of Jury's shows was talking about the idea that, yeah, that's a good thing, though. If it looks good, that means they're handling the COVID thing. If they actually want it to look like they can't handle the COVID thing. They want it to look like the COVID response is fucking everything up, including their convention. Um, which I thought was an interesting thought. I, I, but I don't know if Americans are going to see that and, and sort of understand that, or if they're just going to see, like, God, this looks like shit. Um, and it would reflect poorly on the DNC. Interesting thought, though, I thought. We have an update on an earlier story. You remember that kid who posted on, uh, on the anniversary of the Tiananmen Square Massacre? He posted a picture of himself with an AR-15 at his own home and got kicked out of school for it? We have an update. Uh, posted on the 20th to thefire.org, uh, Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education. In court filing, Fordham gives up the charade. In a court filing this week, Fordham University finally admitted a truth that Fire and Fordham students have known for a while. Fordham just doesn't care about student speech rights. Sure, Fordham makes big promises about freedom of expression. The university, quote, guarantees the freedom of inquiry to students and claims they have a, quote, a right to freely express their positions and work for their acceptance, whether they assent to or dissent from existing situations at the university, the university or society. Sounds great, but talk is cheap. When it comes to actually honoring these promises, Fordham's recent track record is ugly. Uh, there is a bit of a rundown on, on what actually happened, uh, and let's skip down here. Tong sued Fordham last month in New York State Court, alleging that Fordham failed to follow its own policies governing student expression. 
In a response filed this week, Fordham admitted that it has no problem restricting students' uh, speech it doesn't like. The university argues that Tong, quote, deliberately ignores Fordham's prerogative to limit a student free expression right, which is outlined in the University Code of Conduct. But the University Code of Conduct doesn't outline any exceptions to the university's sweeping promise of free expression that would justify Tong's punishment. And Fordham ceded whatever, quote, prerogative it may have to limit student speech rights by explicitly promising students like Tong the right to freely express themselves. In other words, Fordham guarantees free speech on its website and in its policies, but once in court, Fordham gives up the charade. Tong Su benefits from recent precedent. After Fordham denied recognition uh, to a prospective chapter of, of a student for justice in Palestine because it feared the group's viewpoint would lead to, quote, polarization, a decision that earned the school a spot on a 2017 list of worst institutes for free speech, the students sued in state court, alleging that the school failed to follow its own policies. They won last year. But Fordham appealed, so last month, Fire filed a front of the court brief, joined by PEN America and the National Coalition Against Censorship, NCAC. What a great organization they are. Uh, asking the state appellate court to again hold Fordham to its own promises. Because Fordham isn't pretending that it cares about free speech anymore, it should update its mission statement and policies. It should also alert its accreditor, the Middle States Commission on Higher Education, which requires that an accredited university, quote, possess and demonstrate a commitment to academic freedom, intellectual freedom, and freedom of expression. That's just not an accurate description of the climate at Fordham, as the school has now admitted in state court, and as Tong and Students for Justice in Palestine already know all too well. So, this thing is in court. Fordham has admitted that they don't care about free expression, which seems to be something they care about very much based upon their own literature, including the Student Code of Conduct. And so they should lose this case outright. <laughs> um, let's move on. Syracuse University, also from the fire, published on the 19th. Syracuse University adopts even worse policies for free speech, threatens to hold bystanders accountable. By adopting new policies that threaten to hold bystanders responsible for, quote, bias-related incidents and hate speech, Syracuse University shows yet again that its promises of free speech are wholly unreliable. The new policy language, which went into effect on July 1st, demonstrates how impermissibly vague policies are just as damaging to free expression as clear restrictions. Syracuse, a private university that promises student free speech rights, restricts those rights both in uh, policy and in practice. The university has earned a spot on FIRE's worst colleges for free speech list several times over the past decade. And its speech codes earned our worst red light rating for more than 10 years. Recently, Syracuse made matters even worse by broadening the scope of its code of student conduct to bystanders. The revisions added in part the bolded text below. Assistance, participation in, promotion of, or, per or perpetuation of harassment, whether physical, digital, oral, written, or video, including any violation of the Syracuse University anti-harassment policy or sexual harassment, abuse, and assault prevention policy, bias-related incidents, including instances of hate speech, may qualify as harassment under this code, and the university's anti-harassment policy, too. Assistance, participation in, promotion of, or per uh, perpetuation of conduct, which, uh, whether physical, electronic, oral, written, or video, which threatens the mental health, physical health, or safety of anyone. The code doesn't provide any further information about what constitutes promotion of or perpetuation of harassment, making the policy exceedingly vague and difficult to follow. If a student stands silently next to a person who's harassing someone, will they also be held responsible? What about if they simply retweet a message that's reportedly part of a pattern of behavior that threatens the, quote, mental health of another person? Given that hostile environment harassment typically involves a pattern of repeated conduct, how is a bystander supposed to know that one incident they're observing is actually the tenth in a series of incidents that has potentially created a hostile environment? Uh, Syracuse responded, it was garbage. <clears throat> Let's move on. Published on the 14th, a long time coming, the new Title IX regulations take effect. Uh, today, that's today being the 14th, 
today for the story. Time has dilated. Today, almost three years after the Department of Education rescinded the, tw the 2011 Dear Colleague letter that kicked off an era of unprecedented disregard for the rights of accused students on campus, new Title IX regulations take effect that carefully balance the rights of all students. Um, I need to do a piece. Again, I've, I've, I've talked to several people about this. Um, I need to do... I need to start uh, compiling more research on the topic. The idea of Title IX and, and what the Dear Colleague letter was and how these things have developed over time, I'd like to do a special about that. Uh, an episode that's, that's almost entirely about that. Because a lot of people don't really know what it is. Uh, somebody was asking me if Title IX was like a very recent thing. Like, like in the 2000s. I was like, no. No, no, it's been around for a lot longer than that. But you wouldn't know it because nobody talks about it. Nobody talks about Title IX and the effect that it has and the kind of power that it gives, and, and nobody, nobody discusses these things. I'd like to do an episode about it. Uh, back to the story. Unlike the furtively designated 2011 Dear Colleague letter, these regulations are the result of a lengthy process during which the department sought notice and comment from the public and painstakingly reviewed and incorporated feedback from over 100,000 commenters. Indeed, several opponents of the regulations recently asked courts to enjoin them on the grounds they were, quote, arbitrary and capricious, and in rejecting those motions, the court cited the department's extensive explanation of its reasoning for each of the provisions in the regulations. So what changes can we expect from the new regulations? Most critically for FIRE's purposes, the new regulations include significant protections for free speech and due process. Protections that universities ostensibly committed to free expression and fundamental fairness should provide, but often do not. While the previous administration employed an overly broad definition of sexual harassment, quote, any unwelcome conduct of a sexual nature, including verbal conduct, uh, that encompassed a great deal of constitutionally protected speech. The new regulations define student-on-student -student or peer sexual harassment in accordance with the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Davis v. Monroe County Board of Education. From 99, this standard appropriately balances universities' twin obligations to address discriminatory harassment while also protecting the right to free speech. Under the new regulations, peer sexual harassment is defined as, quote, unwelcome conduct that, is re that a reasonable person would determine is so severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive that it effectively denies a person equal access to the school's education program or activity. That's a very good definition from a, from a case that, uh, that isn't terrible. I, I'm, I'm happy they went to that. Because a large number of schools adopted the previous administration's any unwelcome conduct of a sexual nature definition, these institutions will need to revise the harassment policies to comply with the new regulations. For some schools, such as the University of Massachusetts at Lowell and Wichita State University, this change would lead directly to an improved uh, fire speech code rating since any unwelcome conduct of a sexual nature is such an overbroad definition that it automatically earned the school fire's worst red light rating. The new regulations also include critical procedural protections that will make the Title IX disciplinary process more equitable and more reliable. As an initial matter, the regulations require that students be given detailed notice of the allegations against them before they can be expected to answer those allegations, something that schools often try to avoid doing. The regulations specifically that no, uh, the re I'm sorry, the regulations specify that notice must include, quote, the identities of the parties involved in the incident, if known, the conduct allegedly constituting sexual harassment under the regulations, and the date and location of the alleged incident, if known. Under the new regulations, institutions must allow both parties to, quote, inspect and review any evidence obtained as part of the investigation that is directly related to the allegations raised in a formal complaint. Even if the university isn't going to rely on that evidence in making its determination, this will make it much more difficult for universities to suppress either exculpatory or inculpatory evidence. The regulations also require schools to resolve not Title IX complaints through a process that offers a student a live hearing with the opportunity for cross-examination through an advisor. 
Currently, many institutions resolve Title IX complaints using a single investigator model where one or two individuals interview parties, gather evidence, and reach determination, all without the parties ever having the opportunity to question one another, despite the fact that so many of these cases hinge almost entirely on credibility. As a number of courts have held, there is really no substitute for a process in which students have the opportunity to challenge inconsistencies in each other's stories in real time before a decision maker. Without this opportunity, it's difficult, if not impossible, to meaningfully challenge the other party's credibility. And despite the fact that cross-examination has been painted as something accruingly, uh, I'm sorry, accruing, has been painted as something accruing primarily to the benefit of the accused, in reality, this right is critical for both parties, etc., etc., etc. Better due process protections, better definitions of things like sexual harassment, uh, much, much better uh, regulations for these universities, and. Um, it's 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 a good thing. It's a good thing. People hate it. People think these new Title IX things are designed to victimize women and shit like that. It's not. It's not. It's bringing the university system back in line with the rights that adults should have. Uh, <laughs> at least under the current legal mode. I like this story, too. Police unions lose bid to block the release of huge trove of NYPD misconduct records. This from Reason. Published on the 21st. A coalition of New York City police, firefighter, and prison guard unions have lost their bid to block the city's planned release of a huge trove of police, of police misconduct records. The ruling clears the way, at least for the moment, for New York City's Civilian Complaint Review Board, CCRB, to post officers' complaint histories and for the New York Police Department to release separate uh, disciplinary records it holds. All those records had been confidential for the past 40 years under Section 50A, a notorious police secrecy law. But the New York legislature repealed the law in June, a stinging defeat for police unions, who were still bitterly fighting to claw back what records they can. Today, U.S. District Judge Catherine Polk uh, Faya, I'm going to assume that's how it's pronounced, I have no idea, declined to grant a preliminary injunction barring New York City from releasing unsubstantiated misconduct allegations. Whoa, an, an unidentified person on an unmuted line shouted during the telephonic court hearing as Faya announced she was almost totally rejecting the police union's request. Last month, uh, I'm just going to say the judge, temporarily blocked New York City from disclosing the records while she weighed the union's arguments in the release of unsubstantiated complaints would lead to retaliation against police officers and harm their reputations and future employment prospects. Aww. But before the unions filed their lawsuit, the review board released misconduct records to the New York Civil Liberties Union, NYCLU, and ProPublica, the latter of which published its own database of more than 4,000 complaints. The court initially blocked the NYCLU from releasing its records, but yesterday the Second Court of Appeals lifted that stay as well. The NYCLU immediately published a database of more than 300, uh, oh my god, 320,000 complaints filed against the city's police officers since 1985. The New York Times reports that only 3% of those complaints were substantiated. Today the judge ruled that the unions had failed to demonstrate the release would cause concrete harms or risk to officers. Quote, plaintiffs has presented speculation only that these disclosures will increase the risk of officer harm, judge said, noting that these records are public in a dozen other states. Faya did, however, grant a narrow injunction blocking the city from releasing records for certain low-level disciplinary offensive that can be expunged under the officer's collective bargaining agreement. CCRB Chair Fred Davey said in a press release today that this outcome, quote, is not only legally justified, but is the only logical path forward to preserving what New Yorkers and lawmakers intend, intended through the repeal of 50A. I applaud today's decision. The fight for transparency has been delayed, but not deterred. Uh, Steve Bannon was arrested. I don't know if I want to read this whole thing. Let's go to, uh... Here, we're just going to read this bit here. Bannon was indicted Thursday on one count of conspiracy to commit wire fraud and one count of conspiracy to commit money laundering. 
As the executive chairman of Breitbart News, following the death of site founder Andrew Breitbart, Bannon shaped the outfit's nativist stance with stories on things like scary descriptions of refugees and called it, quote, the platform for the alt-right in a 2016 interview. He would go on to become one of the architects of Trump's travel ban aimed at Muslim-majority countries, and though the Trump administration has said on various occasions that it supports a legal immigration program, Bannon called legal immigration, quote, the real beating heart of the problem. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Bannon, who was found and arrested Thursday morning on a $35 million yacht belonging to a close associate, has already called the indictment a political hit job. A few figures on the right have followed suit, including Fox News host Lou Dobbs, who characterized it as a, quote, deep state plot. And Jenna Ellis, a Trump 2020 campaign advisor who tweeted it was, quote, yet another malicious political prosecution, um, sorry, yeah, prosecution, referring to the growing list of close Trump aides who had, been, who had faced criminal charges. The indictment describes an ornate plot set in motion by Brian Colfage, Colfage? Andrew uh, Dabalato, Timothy Shea, and Bannon, who used the fundraising rules, uh, ruse, I'm sorry, to regularly siphon large sums of money from people who believe that 100% of their donations would go toward construction, and that the campaign organizers indicted this, by the way, this was funding for the wall, um, that the campaign organizers indicted this week were volunteering their time and resources without payment. The project raised a total of $25 million, and according to the campaign's website, 100 miles are ready to be built. Though under five miles of border fencing has actually been erected, the site reads, Promises made, promises capped. <laughs> Bannon faces up to 40 years in prison, but his actual sentence will likely not come close to the statutory maximum penalty. Oh, goodness. That's a, I love that story. Bannon's such a, Bannon was trying to put himself in a position, after 2016, Bannon was trying to put himself in a position to be a kingmaker in the Republican Party, in the GOP. Um, Bannon wanted to be the guy who, if he endorsed a, a person, this is, this is especially in the lead up to like the, uh, the, uh, the 2018 congressional elections and things like that. Bannon wanted it to be a thing where it's like, if Bannon says you're good, every Republican's going to vote for you. He wanted to be a kingmaker. Ended up not working out. Um, and now we have this, which is just hilarious to me. Uh, I'm not surprised at all by it either. Not, not just because Bannon's a dick, but. Bannon is a dick, but not just because of that, but also because of the fact that you can't trust people making political promises ever. <laughs> they won't do it. This was interesting as well from Reason, published on the 20th. Lyft and Uber get last-minute reprieve before they would have yeeted services in California. It says yeeted. They meant canceled, but I have the word replacer that replaces the word cancel and canceled with yeet and yeeted. Um, so, yeah, my bad. Uh, rideshare services Lyft and Uber. More importantly, they're freelance drivers. I'm sorry, and more importantly, their freelance drivers and customers dodged a bullet today as the judge decided to allow the companies to continue classifying the drivers as independent contractors while the court battle wages on. Both co co companies publicly announced that they'd be ending their services in California rather than complying with, the legislation, the con uh, with legislation, the controversial AB5, and a recent court ruling ordering them to classify their drivers as employees by Friday. AB5 is going to leave a lot of people unemployed. This is, California is a hellhole. And the, the passage of AB5 is evidence of that. Freelancers are fucked in California. And, and the economy at this point is a gig economy. There's, there are very few, uh, especially compared to uh, the, not, uh, the, the, the not particularly distant past, um, the, the economy is made up of freelance work. It's not, <laughs> there's no careers anymore. Uh, these don't exist. But freelancers are fucked by AB5. We talked about it on the show before. Um, Uber officials had warned that complying with the law would drive costs up so much that consumers would end up paying as much as 111% more for rides in some places. 
in a blog post from Lyft today explaining they'd be, they'd be shutting down. They said the changes would result in 80% of their drivers losing work in California and passengers seeing reduced services in suburban and rural areas. So facing an intractable California government lobbied heavily by labor unions and hostile to a freelance economy, Uber and Lyft threatened to take their balls and go home. Today's ruling will, will delay the classification order and will allow them to continue operating until at least mid-October, where they'll continue to attempt to argue in court that they should not have to treat drivers as conventional employees. They will, however, also have to submit plans to the court explaining in advance how they plan to comply with the ruling should they lose. Um, I'm going to stop there. There's a little bit more to it, but it'll be in the show notes if you're Here we go. Shard Avocado, Art Acevedo, the Mega City 3 police chief and uh, indemitable scumbag, Art Acevedo, published on the 19th. The Democrats should not be presenting Mega City 3's police chief as an avatar of reform. During a panel discussion led by Joe Biden at the Democratic National Convention on Monday night, Mega City 3 police chief Art Acevedo emphasized the need for national standards to prevent the sort of abuse that led to George Floyd's death in Minneapolis on May 25th. Really? Oh, fuck me. <laughs> everything he says, everything he says makes me angry. Um, quote, this is a watershed moment. We can't lose this moment, Acevedo said. Quote, we have got, uh, we've got to have action at the national level. We've got to have congressional action. Acevedo's passing of the buck to Congress was unsurprising given the deadly corruption in his own department, which he was reluctant to acknowledge and slow to address. But policing is primarily a local responsibility, and Acevedo should not get away with shifting the focus from his own ma uh, manifest failures by calling on the federal government to intervene. In recent months, Acevedo, who was president of the mayor, uh, I'm sorry, of the major city's chiefs association, has been presenting himself as an avatar of police reform, joining Black Lives Matter protesters and condemning racism and expressing outrage at Floyd's death. Quote, we will march as a department with everybody in this community, he told local demonstrators in May. Quote, I will march until I can stand no more. But Acevedo's response to a deadly 2019 drug raid shows a different sort of police chief, one who reflexively defends his officers when their actions have lethal consequences, credulously accepts their version of events, and denies the existence of a systematic problem, even when their lies are revealed. The operation that killed Dennis Tuttle and uh, Regina Nichols, which I believe is how that's pronounced, uh, Regina Nicholas, I'm sorry, uh, in their home on Harding Street does not fit the usual Black Lives Matter template. Tuttle and Nicholas were white, uh, while Gerald Goins, the veteran narcotics officer who instigated the no-knock raid based on the heroin sale that never happened, is black. The incident nevertheless illustrates the same basic problems as a cause, as a case, I'm sorry, that has figured prominently in the nationwide protest triggered by Floyd's death. The shooting of Breonna Taylor, a black EMT and aspiring nurse in Louisville, Kentucky, last March. In both cases, police obtained no-knock warrants based on dubious evidence, broke into homes when the residents were asleep, responded with overwhelming force when their victims tried to defend themselves, and found no evidence of drug dealing. And in both cases, there was no body camera video to show what happened. Acevedo's initial response to the Harding Street raid was telling. Although it was clear right away that something had gone horribly wrong, he repeatedly praised the officers as heroes, uncritically regurgitating their account, and posthumously tarred Tuttle and Nicholas as dangerous heroin dealers, claiming neighbors had thanked the cops for finally taking action against a locally notorious drug house. As evidence of the couple's criminal activity, Acevedo cited a telephone call in which an anonymous woman had reported that, quote, her daughter was in the house and there were guns and heroin. He blamed Tuttle for the deadly gun battle, which injured four officers, even while acknowledging the cops had opened fire first, using a shotgun to kill the couple's dog immediately after entering the home. He indignantly rejected the suggestion that the officers might have been hit by friendly fire, a question that still has not been publicly answered. Even after the investigators discovered that Goins had invented the heroin sale that was the basis for the search warrant, Acevedo said he still thought the officers who killed Tuttle and Nichols were heroes. He even brazen, he, I'm sorry, he even bizarrely insisted that, quote, they had probable cause to be there. He continued referring to, the Tuttle, to Tuttle and Nicholas as suspects. A federal investigation later revealed that the neighbor whose phone call Acevedo cited as independent evidence against the couple had made the whole thing up. 
I fucking hate this guy. Arn Acevedo is a is one of the biggest pieces of shit I think on the planet for a number of reasons, not the least of which is that he's totally cool with these murders that happened um, as a result of the snow knock raid. Um, and he still praises the officers who killed those uh, two innocent individuals. He's also a guy who got kicked out of it. I've mentioned this on the show before. He left California. Uh, I believe he was in the, uh, I believe he was a, hi- uh, a highway cop in California. He left California as a result of allegations of sexual impropriety. Uh, then he went to Austin, where he said that the reason that people shouldn't be allowed to carry firearms on campus is because uh, the, the, uh, the, the, I don't have the exact quote, but this was the uh, the sentiment. Because we have therapy for rape victims. That's a thing that exists, so people shouldn't be allowed to carry guns on campus. Uh, he leaves Austin, comes to Mega City 3, and uh, the, uh, the, the Goyans raid happens, and uh, the Harding Street raid, and he says the people who killed these two innocent individuals uh, who were smeared by the police... Uh, posthumously, the people who killed them were heroes. The people who murdered these people were heroes. Um, so yeah, fuck Art Acevedo. And this isn't just a, a Mega City Three thing either. This is this is everywhere. This is in in big departments, small departments. Uh, you know, down here in the Gulf Coast, East Coast, West West Coast, uh, Midwest. This is cops, man. This isn't. This is nothing other than this is how cops act, especially powerful cops. Uh, it's, it's, <laughs> God, it, it's just, it's sickening. It's sickening. That's all it is. Hmm. I have a story here about how Americans dislike both Biden and Trump, but before we go there, I think it's time. Fred is good to find. It's time for who do you trust? Hubba, hubba, hubba. Money, money, money. Who do you trust? Who do you trust? I'll tell you who I trust. I trust Superior executive producers uh exerci and saw you 77 i trust producers whoa dude absurd as fool uh and max ogburn um as i said earlier there is a uh there are a couple people who were deleted by the system um if you canceled yourself that's totally fine but it does it does show that you were deleted by the system so if you you might want to go double check and see if you really wanted to leave. If you wanted to leave, it's fine. No big deal. But if if you didn't, yeah, it just shows deleted by the system. So we have uh, book two of The Inquiry came out and uh, I liked it. I went back and listened to it uh, at, you know, from the feed just to make sure everything went okay. Uh, I listened back to a lot of it while I was actually recording it, but I hadn't heard it all stitched together. So I went back and listened to it in the feed. I thought it sounded really good. Um, it's it's a good chapter. It's a really good book uh, as as part of it. So I'd like to do a third. I'd like to do the third one before too long. This one went a little quicker because it was a lot shorter than the first book, but it was also I I already kind of had the system down. It all kind of came back pretty quick. So. I was able to work through that, but that is in the feed now. Um, book two of the inquiry is there, and for that you can thank the uh, the people who support the show. Executive producers saw you seventy seven and Xerxes. Producers Woe Dude Absurdus Fool and Max Auburn. Um, if you'd like to join them, you can do that uh, from the Rogue File, roguefile.com, from Alternative Internet Radio, ARED.io. 
there's a link there to donate. There's other methods as well. Crypto, there's a merch store. Um, outside of that, though, uh, if you, you absolutely don't have to uh, do any, any of those things, you can download the show, tell a friend, join the Discord, hit me up on Twitter. Um, there's a, there's a community here that I'm very, very proud of. Every one of these people is intelligent, is intelligent and, uh, fun to talk to, especially in the discord. So, uh, you can, you can, uh, all of that helps. Every little bit helps. Uh, so let's thank again, executive producers, saw you 77 and Xerxes, producers, whoa, dude, observers, fool, and Max Ogburn. You are all beautiful, wonderful diamonds in the rough, uh, wolves amongst ravens, gods amongst men. Beautiful bright spots of light in this dark and dingy place that we all call the internet. I'll just read a little bit of this. We have published on the 19th, Americans dislike both Biden and Trump. Uh, on the opening night of the Democratic National Convention, former First Lady Michelle Obama begged voters to resist the urge to refrain from voting or to vote for third-party candidates. Quote, this is not the time to withhold your votes in protest or play games with candidates who have no chance of winning. The former First Lady exhorted whatever audience, perhaps out of masochism, chose to tune in to the virtual convention. It was a fitting moment of desperation, and one that should be echoed at the Republican convention, given the disdain many Americans hold for the presidential candidates of both legacy parties. Once again, we're being asked to pick between candidates that just aren't up to the job. Quote, as both political parties prepare for their conventions, one in four Americans do not think either of the major party presidential candidates would be a good president, Gallup noted last week. Uh, quote, the percentage saying neither candidate would make a good president is the highest on record. Unfortunately, one of those hopefuls is almost certain to win or retain power over a government that has too much say in our lives. Uh, it is no wonder that in 2016, millions of voters picked Libertarian Gary Johnson or, Jill St or Green Jill Stein or declined to vote at all rather than choose between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. That year, the Democratic and Republican nominees headed into Election Day, quote, with the worst election eve images of any major party presidential candidates Gallup has measured back to 1956. Uh, that's a line I want to read from there. Everybody hates both of them. Here's an interesting thing as well. Uh, Hillary Clinton at the DNC, her speech consisted almost entirely of it's your fault i lost it is your fault that i lost you have to go vote for joe biden because it is your fault you watching this it is your fault that i lost because you didn't go vote for me because you stayed home and it was hilarious to me that that was the tone that she chose to take um when in reality her failures are entirely the fault of the fact that her campaign was run in a in a manner that reveals a level of, hmm, I don't know what the best word for it is. Probably something along the lines of comfort. She was comfortable. She thought she had uh, support where she didn't. She thought she was owed support where she wasn't. Um, she also had, look, there were massive failures on the part of her campaign, especially in what they thought was going to be the blue wall. Uh, she was too comfortable. She was arrogant. And it cost her. And then she goes on television and starts saying, It was you! Oh, yeah, that doesn't make her particularly likable. Uh, let's go just to this here pretty quick. Oregon ballot initiative would decriminalize low-level possession of all drugs. Measure 110 would reduce felony convictions for drug possession by an estimated 95%. 
That was published on the 21st. That'll be in the show notes. I don't need to go read through that. It's uh, it's it's exactly what the headline says. Oregon ballot initiative would decriminalize level possession of all drugs. Um, I mentioned on Twitter the other day that I had kind of found in reading a couple of things, I, I had thought of the Second Amendment in a way that I hadn't thought of it before. And in, in the way that I believe it was meant to be thought of, where the major players in the narrative, and there, there are people who have written about this already, and I'm, I'm going to read from them, um, but the major players in the narrative about the Second Amendment are, and gun ownership generally are wrong about what the Second Amendment means. And this all hinges on the... Um, this all hinges... Well, here, let's pull up the text and the text of a couple of other things so we can actually dig into this as deeply as it deserves. Uh, okay, so uh, first, let's, let's actually begin with a, a bit of a history lesson. So, upon the signing of the Declaration of Independence, the individual states had to pass their own constitutions. Uh, under the Articles of Confederation, and this is happening concurrently with the Revolutionary War, after the Declaration of Independence. So, these states had to put together the way that their state governments were going to work. Now, most of them were very similar to the, you know, the, the general sort of Republican form of government that, that we see in states now, but they had a lot more power under the Articles of Confederation. The, the, the federal government didn't have much power. They especially didn't have the power to tax. They asked for money from the states, and the states said no. Um, that's pretty much how that went. But as part of these constitutions, one of the things that, that, that became commonplace was a declaration of rights or a bill of rights, uh, tied to the state constitution. This is part of the reason that the, that the United States constitution, which was ratified without a bill of rights, the first thing added to it was a bill of rights. This was, uh, let me find, I can't remember who it was that James Madison, I'm sorry. I think it was James Madison who was like, as soon as we get into Congress, the first thing I'm doing is making sure that there's a Bill of Rights attached to this thing. And that was what happened. Uh, the first 10 amendments came after the ratification, not before. So we ratify the Constitution. We have the first 10 amendments and the second of which has to do with uh, militias. I want to go to the text of... Um, some of the state's Bill of Rights had very, very similar, uh, very similar statements. Let's look at the Virginia Declaration of Rights. This is from 1776. This is part of the Constitution of Virginia. That a well-regulated militia composed of the body of the people trained to arms is the proper, natural, and safe defense of a free state that standing armies in time of peace should be avoided as dangerous to liberty, and that in all cases the military should be under strict subordination to and governed by the civil power. This is, um, <laughs> this is, this, I mean, this is basically a precursor to the Second Amendment. You probably recognize a lot of those same words. Let's read the text of the Second Amendment. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. That is what's there. Let's look at some of these other ones from the individual states. Let's look at Pennsylvania. This is another 1776 Declaration of Rights. That the people have a right to bear arms for the defense of themselves and the state and a standing armies in a time of peace are dangerous to liberty. They ought not to be kept up. That the military should be kept under strict subordination to and governed by the civil power. Let's go to Maryland. A well-regulated militia is proper and a natural defense of a, of a free government. Standing armies are dangerous to liberty and ought not to be raised or kept up. 
without consent of the legislature, that in all cases and all, at all times, the military ought to be under strict subordination uh, to and control of the civil power. What do you have to say about it, North Carolina in 1776? That the people have a right to bear arms for the defense of the state, and as standing armies in time of peace are dangerous to liberty, they ought not be kept up. That the military should be kept under strict subordination to and governed by the civil power. Uh, New York's is weird. New York actually takes the militia under the wing of the state early on, uh, and says that New York is going to be we're going to we're going to keep up the uh, the magazines and the. Uh, uh, we're going to make sure that we have the, uh, the weapons in, in local government-controlled you know, county uh, lockups and things of this nature. Let's go to Vermont, though, 1777. That the people have a right to bear arms for the defense of themselves and the state, and as standing armies in time of peace or dangerous liberty, they ought not to be kept up. That the military should be kept under the strict subordination and uh, subordination to and governed by the civil power. Now let's go to Massachusetts, 1780. The people have a right to keep and bear arms for common defense, and as in time of peace, armies are dangerous to liberty, they ought not to be maintained without the consent of the legislature, and the military power shall always be held in exact subordination to the civil authority and governed by it. That's it, that's it, that's that's what it is. Um, these are the underpinnings of what became the Second Amendment. Again, I'll, I'll read it. it. It fits in almost perfectly with these state declarations of right um, that were written from, you know, 1776 all the way up through 1780. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state and the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. One of the things you'll notice, with the exception of a couple of these state declarations of rights, again, with, with the exception of just a couple of them, one of the things that you're going to notice is Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Vermont, Massachusetts. These, these uh, begin with the right to keep and bear arms, but the thing that follows it is for the common defense, or for the defense of themselves in the state, or uh, the right to bear arms for the defense of the state. And then they all go on to say, standing armies in time of peace are dangerous to liberty. They all go on to say that. The point of these was not necessarily to protect the right to bear arms. These things were written to protect the existence of militia. All of these, all of these declarations of right, all have, I mean, they all go back to it. Our standing armies in time of peace are dangerous to liberty. They ought not to be kept up. The military should be kept in a strict subordination. Blah, 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 blah. All of this is about militias. All of this is about the existence of militias and why standing armies are bad things. And so when you look at it in that light, the idea that every single one of these was protecting the militia, not the right to bear arms. The right to bear arms was a given. The right to, the right to uh, have militias exist is what's being protected here. The Second Amendment makes much more sense. A well-regulated militia being necessary to security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed is a function of the militia being necessary to security of a free state. It's, the, the Second Amendment is not, I don't think, the Second Amendment is particularly concerned with the right to bear arms. It's a given. The existence of the militia is the thing that is uh, being protected here. And it's, it's, I don't know, I've, nobody talks about it that way. Um, what I notice in the, in the mainstream narratives is that on the right, they treat this as though it's an anachronism. They treat the militia clause as though it is a weird sort of holdover from before we had a national military and all this other stuff. What they were really concerned about was the right to keep and bear arms. And with regard to the militia thing, of course, the, the left has uh, these other arguments about how they couldn't have foreseen these weapons and blah, 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 even though privately owned battleships were allowed. Anyway, um, <laughs> with like 
you know, long strings of cannon along each side. Anyway, the, um, what the, the left generally says with regard to the militia clause is, well, you have to be in a militia to have the right to keep and bear arms, which is also not true. The right is wrong when they say that this is like a weird anachronism, and the left is wrong when they say that you have to be in a militia. I say this because you are in the militia, you just don't know it. We'll come back to that. So as I was doing some reading about this, I found an interesting piece on, on, uh, on, from the Mises Institute. This was written in 2018. Actually, this was written two years ago today, 8-22-2018. And it's a very interesting piece. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I, I, was, I, I thought for sure that other people had thought of this or thought about this. And indeed, they have here from the Mises Institute, written by uh, Ryan McMacken, Macon, Ryan McMacken, Ryan McMacken, one of those two, written a number of other things uh, on Mises. Anyway, let's go to the text of this little piece here. While many defenders of private gun ownership recognize that the Second Amendment was written to provide some sort of counterbalance against the coercive power of the state, this argument is often left far too vague to reflect an accurate view of this historical context surrounding the amendment. After all, it is frequently pointed out that private ownership of shotguns and semi-automatic rifles could offer only very limited resistance to the extremely well-equipped and well-armed United States military. It is often, therefore, just assumed that the writers of the Second Amendment were naive and incapable of seeing the vast asymmetries that would develop between military weaponry, weaponry I'm sorry, and the sort of weaponry the average person was likely to use. Was the plan really to just have, an unorganized, just have unorganized amateurs grab their rifles and repel the invasion of a well-trained military force? The answer is no, and we know this by looking at the wording and reasoning behind the Second Amendment. The text, of course, reads, A well-regulated militia being necessary to secure a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Gun rights advocates often fixate on the second half of the amendment, claiming that the phrase about a militia is just something that provides a reasoning for the second phrase. Many opponents of gun control even suggest that the only phrase here of key importance is, shall not be infringed. The Second Amendment uh, is a guard against a standing army. Looking at the debates surrounding the Second Amendment and military power at the end of the 18th century, however, we find the authors of the Second Amendment had a more sophisticated vision of gun ownership than is often assumed. Fearful that a large federal military could be used to destroy the freedoms of the states themselves, anti-federalists and other Americans, fearful of the centralized power of the United States government, des uh, designed the Second Amendment accordingly. It was designed to guarantee that the states would be free to raise and train their own militias as a defense against federal power, and as a means of keeping a defensive military force available to Americans while remaining outside the direct control of the federal government. Um, let's move on just a little bit more. As historian Leon Friedman concludes, quote, the people organized in the state militias were regarded as a counterforce against the threat that the, regulatory, that the regular army could be used as an instrument of oppression and service in the militia was a right of the citizen that should not be transgressed by the federal government. In light of this, it's easier to find the key element offered by the militia phrase of the Second Amendment. Even after the adoption of the new constitution, opposition to a powerful federal military continued. Congress opposed not only attempts to increase the size of the professional U.S. Army much beyond 1,000 men, but also opposed attempts to mandate any specific training in a, quote, federally organized militia system. In the end, opposition to federal control of military affairs meant training of militias was, quote, left entirely to the states. Um, the unorganized militia also uh, is mentioned in this piece. Let's go to... Uh, while some advocates of gun control might claim that gun ownership is guaranteed only to those engaged in active militia service, this idea is directly opposed by the provisions in state constitutions guaranteeing private gun ownership and a general inclusion in the militia of all able-bodied males. This notion was recognized by policymakers even before the ratification of the federal constitution, as noted by legal historian David Yasky. 
Uh, quote, as we have seen in practice, founding era militias were far from universal, but in the founders' conceptual framework, the militia consisted of the mass of ordinary citizens trained to arms and available to serve at the call of the state. This is exactly the language that we read in those state declarations of right. Uh, back to the thing, as George Mason put it, quote, who are the militia? They consist now of the whole people, except for a few public officers, when the second Congress sought to exercise constitutional authority to provide for organizing army and discipline in the militia, it directed, quote, each and every free, able-bodied white male citizen of the, of the respective states, except for persons exempted under state law and certain other exempted classes, uh, this was largely the Quakers, uh, who is of the age of 18 years and under the age of 45 years to enroll in the militia of their states, or as Patrick Henry declared the Virginia Ratifying Convention, Quote, the great object is that every man be armed. By the close of the 19th century, this sort of language would be commonplace. An 1894 collection of texts from the state constitution shows that not fewer than 22 state constitutions contained language along the lines of the militia of the, of the state shall consist of all able-bodied male residents of the state between the ages of 18 and 45 years. This is actually part of the United States Code. Uh, I believe it's actually, I can just pull it up here to give you the citation directly so you can Google it yourself. Um, let's find it. 10 U.S. Code Section 246, Militia, Composition and Classes. The militia of the United States, I'm sorry, this is directly from the statute. The militia of the United States consists of all able-bodied males at least 17 years of age and except as provided in Section 313 of Title 32, under 45 years of age who are or have been made a declaration of the intention to become citizens of the United States and a female citizens of the United States who are members of the National Guard. All classes of the militia are the organized militia, which consists of the National Guard and the Naval Militia, and... More importantly, this is, uh, this is 10 U.S. Code, Section 246b2. The unorganized militia, which consists of the members of the militia who are not members of the National Guard or the Naval Militia. What this means, codes refer to themselves, which consists of members of the militia who are not members of the National Guard or Naval Militia. Okay, so members of the militia who are not members of the National Guard or Naval Militia, that's B1, the organized militia, people who are in the National Guard and the Naval Militia. B2 refers back to A, the militia of the United States consists of all able-bodied males at least 17 years of age, and except as provided in Section uh, 313 of Title 32, under 45 years of age, who are have, or have made a declaration of intention to become citizens of the United States. The unorganized militia is literally everyone between 17 and 45. And I say that because it does specify males here, but I imagine you might actually have a civil rights problem with that, so uh, it probably would be applied to females as well. That's the militia. The unorganized militia that's mentioned in uh, B2, uh, 10 U.S. Code, Section 246 B2. I am going to say, I'm going to qualify all of this by saying I have not done research on this code. I don't know if it's come up in the court. I don't know if the judiciary has, uh, has interpreted this. I do know that it's pretty obvious in the code itself that unless this has been overturned by the judiciary or somehow amended by the uh the uh by congress which i doubt um because this is I, this should be the amended code here on cornell law school's legal information institute this should be the amended code if there are amendments made to it let's go back to the mizzy's piece ironically enough here let's actually roll up a little bit in spite of the anti-militia bias among federal policymakers, the idea of the unorganized militia persisted even into the 20th century, when the federal government did finally manage to push through the creation of what today is recognizable as a National Guard with the Militia Act of 1903. Official explanations of the act still paid lip service to the supposed value of an unorganized militia. Writing in the North American Review, August 1903, Lieutenant Colonel James Parker 
provides an official summary of the new act, endorsing the traditional view that, quote, the militia shall consist of every able-bodied citizen between 18 and 45 and divides the militia into two classes, the organized militia or National Guard and the unorganized or reserve militia. Parker even goes so far as to suggest that the organized militia provide resources to the unorganized militia to increase proficiency with rifles. Uh, quote, to shoot well is a large part of the education of the soldier, and if the government can arouse interest in shooting, it not only, <laughs> and not only organized but also the unorganized militia, that our male population shall be familiar with the accurate use of the rifle, we shall have gone far towards evening up the advantage of uh, the foreigner gains by his universal conscription. Uh, ironically, though, Parker's explanation in defense of the Militia Act of 1903 serves largely as an unwitting epitaph and eulogy for the idea of the unorganized militia in the United States. The National Guard is created by the Militia Act would, I'm sorry, as created by the Militia Act, would spell the doom of the unorganized militia in the U.S. and serve to completely undermine the Second Amendment and its defense of decentralized military power in the U.S. After 1903, the federalization of the state militias only accelerated until, as Yasky concludes, quote, today's National Guard is thus a far cry from what the founders understood a militia to be. And the result of these changes has brought about, quote, the disappearance of anything the founders would have recognized as a militia. Far from acting as a bulwark against the abuse of federal power, today's National Guard is something the authors of the Second Amendment, quote, would have seen as little better than a standing army. It is interesting that while the original conception of the militia has been destroyed by federalization, and thus the central rationale of the Second Amendment has been eviscerated, state provisions encouraging private gun ownership have proliferated. When it comes to home defense against small-time thieves and murderers, this is all to the good. Widespread, unorganized gun ownership, however, does little to recreate the idea of a locally controlled militia that would be used to keep the size and power of the federal standing armies in check and to decentralize political power away from the federal government. Yes, private gun ownership is undeniably moderately inconvenient for governments at all levels, but compared to the militia concept protected and fostered by the Second Amendment, these privately armed citizens can only offer relatively token resistance. Moreover, the idea that a large standing army ought to be vehemently resisted and viewed with suspicion in favor of both an organized and unorganized militia is long gone. Indeed, many Americans who fancy themselves defenders of the Second Amendment also enthusiastically support a large federal military establishment. George Mason and Patrick Henry would have found such an attitude incomprehensible. Um, I'm fascinated by this. I am fascinated by the fact that this is not the conversation that we're having with regard to the Second Amendment. Now, I know many of the people who listen to this show, and myself, I, I would include as somebody who thinks this way, don't really care about the Second Amendment. I personally don't really care about the Second Amendment. This is not, this is written on the, might as well be written on the back of a napkin. The Constitution has no authority. The Constitution has either allowed such a government as we have had, or has been powerless to prevent it. In either case, it is unfit to exist. That's Lysander Spooner. Um, I think that's correct. But I do, because the conversation about firearms in the United States is largely framed around the Second Amendment, I find it very interesting that those who consider themselves to be very pro-Second Amendment, and also those who consider themselves to be very anti-Second Amendment, have no understanding whatsoever of what the Second Amendment actually says. They're not interested in having any understanding whatsoever about what the Second Amendment actually means. Because, I don't know, maybe it, re maybe it requires that people think too hard. I have no idea. But this is, this is something that is not taught in school. First of all, I know this for a fact. The, the, the Second Amendment as, a, as, a, as an amendment which says standing armies are bad, militias are good, that's why guns are good. Effectively, gun ownership is good. Um... That's the understanding of the Second Amendment that comes with understanding the history of the Second Amendment, especially, again, the Virginia uh, Declaration of Rights and the other state declarations, which were modeled immediately after it. Um, <laughs> I, I find the fact that, that people don't talk about this, they don't know this, they don't 
understand that this is what the conversation should be, uh, I find it fascinating. The, the NRA as an organization, the, uh, the left as a, as, a, as a decentralized group and as a centralized group, have done a very good job. The courts, too, have done a very good job of making sure that the point of the Second Amendment is lost to history and that, effectively, the language that people are constantly arguing about, well, what about the comma? What about this? What about that? That you're arguing about the wrong damn things. None of you are right. None of you are right. Of course, this is in the mainstream, the mainstream narrative. Because, like, as I said, I, I wouldn't have found this Mizzy's piece if I weren't looking for it, but it is there. Like, people have written about this. People have talked about this. But it's not part of the mainstream narrative. The right treats the militia thing as if it's an anachronism and argues about the comma and what it means. And they want to separate those two clauses, the militia and uh, the shall not be infringed clause. And other people are, you know, talk about how that, well, that means you don't have the right to bear arms unless you're in a militia. Well, no, no, that's not what it means either. Everyone is wrong. <laughs> but, and I imagine that some people listening to this were already aware of this. I just found it fascinating. I'm upset with the fact that I only learned about this now. This is the kind of thing I should have known about before. That, oh, well, what are you going to do? I, uh... I'm sure that some of you who are listening to this had already known about this conversation, had already known about the fact that this is how fucked the conversation about gun rights, are, uh, gun rights is. But for those of you who didn't know, now you know. So don't fall for it. When people start talking about, well, this is what the Second Amendment meant, and this is what the Second Amendment meant, no, now you know what the Second Amendment actually meant. And why, frankly, it's irrelevant at this point. <laughs> it's been gutted already. There is no militia. There is no unorganized militia. It's protected in law. It exists in law, but it doesn't exist in practice. And if you try to make it exist in practice, uh, you're, well, good luck with that. <laughs> I don't know. I, I find it very, very interesting. I am, uh, I'm glad I was able to come across this because something's always felt wrong about the way the conversation goes. People don't just throw words into an amendment for the hell of it. So the, the, the militia clause obviously meant something, and this is what it meant. Um, so next time, again, next time somebody tries to tell you what the Second Amendment means, now you know what the Second Amendment means, and you can tell them to fuck off. They have no idea what they're talking about. Uh, thank you all so much. Thank you all so much for listening. Here, I will drop you, uh, I'll drop you one of these guys. If you can't fix what's broken, you'll, uh, you'll go insane. I want to thank everybody who hung out in the chat and kept me on my toes during this recording. You can do that every week, A-I-R-A-D dot I-O slash live. I want to thank everybody who listens to the show, everybody who downloads the show, everybody who rates us and gives us a review on whatever platform you listen on. I want to thank the producers, all you glorious and magnanimous people who support this show. You can do that on AIRAD.io or on the Rogue File, roguefile.com slash donate. Uh, you can find the things that I write on the Rogue File, roguefile.com. Remember, you can find me on Twitter at Dean O Files. You can find the network on Twitter at AltNet Radio. Go ahead and give us a follow there. I love every single one of you glorious freaks, and I will be back with you next week. Y'all have a great week. This has been an alternative internet radio production. For more great shows like this, visit AIR at AIRAD.io. That's AIRAD.io.